Welcome back to the Hemingway List for Book 6, Chapter 7 of Buddhan Brooks. BYO discussion prompts today, but Swim said the Mama Fishy and Techrific have come in with some historical facts to go into this chapter, which had a lot of historical references. Orsini and his bombs were referenced. Um, this reference, says Swim said the Mama Fishy, is an attempt, the attempt made on the 4th of January, sorry, oh god, I can't read today. 14th of January, 1858, by Felice Orsini, with other Italian nationalists, backed by English radicals, to assassinate Napoleon III in Paris. Um, there was also the reference, the Confederation can declare the Constitution for United Holstein and Laurenburg to be illegal all they want. Those fellows up there are simply not about to abandon it. Apparently, these duchies were under dispute with Denmark and the German Confederation. On the 2nd of October 1855, the common Danish constitution was superseded by a parliamentary constitution of a modified type. Um, there's also the reference to uh, the direct railway road to Hamburg. First plans to build a direct rail link between Hamburg and Lübeck were put forward in 1831 because of the refusal of the Danish authorities to allow a direct line to be built through Holstein Gluckstadt, which was ruled by the King of Denmark. The Lübeck-Buchen line was built by the Lübeck-Buchen Railway Company. This provided a connection between Lübeck and Berlin-Hamburg Railway, but meant that trains to Hamburg had to take the route via Buchen. Sacrific says, quick notes, during the Middle Ages, loot players were often spies, especially the king's loot player who often serenaded the king to sleep and was around to pick up information. The barber who sits on the town council must be a veritable fountain of intelligence. I wonder if he shaves other prominent people other than the consul. Not good news from Riga, I fear for Clara Thomas is successful and business is good. The calm before the storm. Yesterday held for me two references of uh, extracting information from the barber. I watched the first episode of Reacher on Amazon Prime and uh, there was a scene where he goes and you know, gets a shave so that he can talk with the barber and suss out some information. And it was just weird that that happened twice in one day, in two different stories that I encountered. Um, I think that's probably the end of similarities between the first episode of Reacher and um, Woodenbrooks. <laughs> Other than that, they're very, very different. But pretty good first episode. I'm going to keep watching it if you're interested in something good to watch. All right. Chapter 3, no, chapter 8, I should say, goes like this. She wrote, I'm assuming this is referring to Tony because the previous episode, uh, chapter ended with a reference to Tony. She wrote, and when I say croquettes, she doesn't understand me because here they are called meaties. And when she says broccoli, how could any Christian know she means cauliflower? When I say baked potatoes, she screams how at me until I remember to say roast potatoes, which is what they call them here. How means what did you say? 
and she is the second one I've had. I sent away the first one, named Katie, because she was so impertinent, or at least I thought she was. I'm getting to see now that I may have been mistaken, for I'm never quite sure whether people here mean to be rude or friendly. This one's name is Babette. She has a very pleasing exterior with something southern, the way of some of them have here, black hair and eyes and teeth that anyone might envy. She is willing too, and I am teaching her how to make some of our home dishes. Yesterday we had sorrel and currants, but I wish I hadn't, for Permanida objected so much to the sorrel he picked the currants out with a fork that he would not speak to me the whole afternoon but just growled, and I can tell you, mother, that life is not so easy. Alas, it was not only the sorrel and the meaties that were embittering Tony's life. Before the honeymoon was over, she had had a blow so unforeseen, so unexpected, so incomprehensible that it took away all her joy in life. She could not get over it, and here it was. Not until after the Permanida couple had been some weeks in Munich had Consul Burenbrook liquidated the sum fixed by his father's will as his sister's second marriage portion. That sum, translated into golden, had at least at last safely reached her permanent's hands, and her permanent had invested it securely and not unprofitably. But then, what he had said, quite unblushingly and without embarrassment to his wife, was this. Tonel, he called her Tonel. Tonel, that's good enough for me. What do we want of more? I've been working my hide off all my days. Now I'd like to sit down and have a little peace and quiet, damned if I wouldn't. Let's rent the pater and the second floor and still we'll have a good house where we can sit and eat our bit of pig's meat without screwing ourselves up and putting on so much lug. And in the evening I can go to the Hofbrau house. I'm no swell. I don't care about scraping money together. I want my comfort. I quit tomorrow and going to private life. Permanida, she cried. And for the first time she had spoken his name with that peculiar throaty sound which her voice always had when she uttered the name of Grunlich. Oh, shut up, don't take on, was all he answered. They had followed thus early in their life together a quarrel, serious and violent enough to endanger the happiness of any marriage. He came off victorious. Her passionate resistance was shattered upon his urgent longing for peace and quiet. It ended in her permanent withdrawing the capital he had in the hop business, so that now her nop, in his turn, could strike the and company off his card after his turn could... Sorry, after which Tony's husband, like most of the friends whom he met around the table in the Hofbrau house, to play cards and drink his regular three litres of beer limited his activities to the raising of rents in his capacity of landlord and to an undisturbed cutting of coupons. The Frau Consul was notified quite simply of this fact, but Frau Permanida's distress was evident in the letters which she wrote to her brother. Poor Tony, her worst fears were more than realised. She had always known that her Permanida possessed none of that resourcefulness of which her first husband had had so much but that he would so entirely confound the expectations she had expressed to Mademoiselle Jungmann on the eve of her betrothal, that he would so completely fail to recognise the duties he had taken upon himself when he married a Buddenbrook that she had never dreamed. 
But these feelings must be overcome, and her family at home saw from her letters how she resigned herself. She lived on rather monotonously with her husband and Erica, who went to school. She attended to her housekeeping, kept up friendly relations with the people who rented the patio, and the first story, and with the Niederpoor family in Marienplatz, and she wrote, now and then, of going to the theatre with her friend Eva. Herpermanity did not care for the theatre, and it came out that he had grown to more than 40 years of age in his beloved Munich, without ever having seen the inside of the Pinachtok. Time passed, but Tony could no longer could sorry could feel no longer any true happiness in her new life since the day when her permanita received her dowry and settled himself down to enjoy his ease. Hope was no more. She would never be able to write home to announce new ventures and new successes. Just as life was now free from cares, it was true, but so limited, so lamentably unrefined, just so it would remain until the end. It weighed upon her, it was plain from her letters to adapt herself to the southern German surroundings. In small matters, of course, things grew easier. She learned to make herself understood by the servants and errand boys, to say meaties instead of croquettes, and to set no more fruit soup before her husband after the one he had called a sickening mess. But in general, she remained a stranger in her new home, and she never ceased to taste the bitterness of the knowledge that to be a born Buddenbrook was not to enjoy any particular prestige in her adopted home. She once related in a letter the story of how she met in the street a mason's apprentice carrying a mug of beer in one hand and holding a large white radish by its tail in the other, who, waving his beer, and Jove said jovially, jo- jovially, Neighbour, can you tell us the time? She made a joke of it in the telling, yet so. Yet even so, a strong undercurrent of irritation betrayed itself. You might be quite certain that she threw back her head and vouchsafed to the poor man, neither answer nor glance in his direction. But it was not alone this lack of formality and absence of distinctions that made her feel strange and unsympathetic. She did not live deeply, it is true, into the life of affairs of her new home, but she breathed the Munich air, the air of a great city full of artists and citizens who habitually did nothing, an air with something about it a little demoralizing, which she sometimes found it hard to take good-humouredly. The days passed, and then it seemed that there was, after all, a joy in store, in fact, the very one which was longed for in vain in Broad Street and Meng Street, for not long after the new year of 1859, Tony felt certain that she was again to become a mother. The joy of it trembled in her letters, which were full of the old childish gaiety and sense of importance. The Frau Consul, who, with the exception of the summer holiday, confined her journeyings more and more to the Baltic coast, lamented that she could not be with her daughter at this time. Tom and Gerda made plans to go to the christening, and Tony's head was full of giving them an elegant reception. Alas, poor Tony, the visit which took place was sad indeed, and the christening, Tony had cherished visions of a ravishing little feast with flowers, sweetmeats, and chocolate, 
never took place at all. A child, a little girl, only entered into life for a tiny quarter of an hour, then, though the doctor did his best to set the pathetic little mechanism going, it faded out of being. Consul Burenbrook and his wife arrived in Munich to find Tony herself not out of danger. She was far more ill than before, and a nervous weakness from which she had already suffered prevented her from taking any nourishment at all for several days. Then she began to eat, and on their departure the Buddenbrooks felt reassured as far as her health was concerned, but in other ways there was much reason for anxiety, for it had been all too plain, especially to the consul's observant eye, that not even their common loss could suffice to bring husband and wife together again. There was nothing against her permanent good heart. He was truly shaken by the death of the child. Big tears rolled down out of his bulging eyes upon his puffy cheeks and on it into his frizzled beard. Many times he sighed deeply and gave vent to his favourite expression. But after all, Tony felt that his peace and quiet had not suffered any long interruption. After a few evenings, he sought the Hofbrau house for consolation and was soon, as he always said, muddling along again in his old, good-natured, comfortable, grumbling way, with the easy fatalism natural to him. But from now on, Tony's letters never lost their hopeless, even complaining tone. Oh, mother, she wrote, why do I have to bear everything like this? First Grunlich and the bankruptcy, and then Pamanda going out of business, then the baby. How have I deserved all these misfortunes? When the consul read these outpourings, he could never quite forego a little smile, for notwithstanding all the real pain they showed, he heard an undertone of almost comic pride, and he knew that Tony Bottenbrook, as Madame Grunlich or as Madame Permanda, was and would remain a child. She bore all her mature experiences almost with a childish unbelief in their reality. Yet with a child's seriousness, a child's self-importance, and above all, with a child's power to throw them off at will. She could not understand how she had deserved her misfortunes, for even while she mocked at her mother's piety, she herself was so full of it that she fervently believed in justice and righteousness on this earth. Poor Tony, the death of her second child was neither the last nor the hardest blow that fell upon her, as the year 1859 drew to a close, something frightful indeed happened. Oh dear. Alright. I guess we'll have to wait and see what that frightful thing is, but I bet it's not going to be good. Alright folks, thank you very much for listening. See you tomorrow.